kingdom. To have the kind of faith that receives the benefits of his person and his work. Now, if there's one thing that's missing in the evangelism of the contemporary church as a whole, it is a view of God's holiness and God's glory that truly convicts the sinner of their sin and makes them long for the grace that is in Christ alone. To see in Christ all that their heart desires. Instead, very often, we're presented with a God whose primary interest is to meet the sinner's need in this life. To meet the sinner's felt need for fulfillment, for happiness, for protection and security. Or he's seen simply as the God who will rescue you from the fires of hell and judgment, but he's seen as being worth very little more than that. Not as a Lord who demands our all as a Savior worth exchanging our life for. And it wasn't so much different with the Jews of Jesus' day. Because they had a distorted view of God, their religion lacked a conviction of sin. It lacked a view of God that made them long and see, long for God's grace and see their need for God's grace. Therefore, their longings for the Messiah were self-centered. They viewed him primarily as an emancipator from their political oppressors. They saw him primarily as one whose devotion was to the glory of Israel, even more, ultimately, than the glory of God himself, though they would not have said it that way. This is why God sent John the Baptist to preach to them a message of repentance. This is why Jesus, when he began his ministry, preached to the people of Israel a message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus labored throughout his ministry, and as we've seen over and over through the Gospel of Matthew, to expose their self-righteousness, to expose them to the true intent of the law so that they would long for their God and for their Savior. But they were blinded to the reality of God's glory and their sin. And so what did they do? They refused their God and their Savior and their Lord. And sadly, it's the same for many, even within the pressing church, who don't really want the Christ of Scripture, and they settle for a lesser Christ and for a superficial religion that does not demand the kind of repentance that Scripture and Jesus holds out before us. So Jesus is going to confront that this morning and show that he's not an add-on, he's not simply a means to personal fulfillment, and he's not simply a ticket out of hell. He's everything, and he must be more valuable than everything else to us. Read with me from Matthew 19, beginning in verses, verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 22. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Let's notice first someone who had the right goal, but in the wrong way. The right goal in the wrong way. Look back at verse 16, and Matthew tells us that someone came to him. Mark 10, 17, a parallel account, says that this happened just as Jesus and his disciples were setting out again on their journey. Remember, they are now traveling to Jerusalem, where Jesus is already informed his disciples, that he would be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the nation, and he will there be put to death and rise on the third day. 
And apparently, as they're setting again on their journey, a man with a burning question weighing on his heart comes to Jesus. Now, who is this man? Who is this man? Well, Matthew first identifies him simply as someone. Someone came to him. Later, he will reveal that he is a young man who was particularly wealthy. He is one who owned much property. Luke describes him as a ruler, a ruler. And according to other uses of this term, that means he could have been a synagogue official. He could have been a leader among the Pharisees. He could have been a member of the Sanhedrin. He could have been a chief magistrate. Or he could have simply been a civic leader. But in whatever it was, he was a person of influence. So what can be said about him? He's a young Jewish male, probably somewhere in his 20s. He could be older, but most likely in his 20s. He was a faithful, law-abiding Israelite. He was a ruler, and whatever that exact identification, it means he was educated, he was intelligent, he was respected, and he was influential. And his wealth probably indicates that he was entrepreneurial. In other words, he was everything that a first century Jew would have seen as a model Israelite, as a picture of the blessing of God on an individual. In other words, he had it all. He had the right balance of wealth, winsomeness, religion, and moral character. And who knows, he may have even been handsome, although the text doesn't tell us. But he is what others long to be. He is what they would have looked at and said, that is what I would want my life to attain to, is what this young man is. Maybe they were envious of him, some. Yet with all that this man man has, he knows that something is tragically Wrong. Something is missing, and he has a great burden on his heart. And he comes to Jesus perplexed, burdened, heavy, something weighing on him. Now, Matthew simply says that he came to him. Mark informs us that he actually ran up to Jesus and knelt down before him, as we've seen other times in Scripture. Clearly, he was eager to catch Jesus before he left. He is someone who was dedicated and diligent to find an answer for what was going on inside of him. And he had the right goal. He came up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? It's a good goal. This is a man who is concerned about his soul. He's concerned about his spiritual life. And he knows that he wants and he knows that he needs eternal life. And shockingly, he knows he doesn't have it. With everything that he has, with everything else that is impressive about this man, he is a man who lacks spiritual life. He's a man who lacks the salvation of his God. He's successful in the world, respectful in religion, secure in his morality, but he is spiritually dead. And so he comes to Jesus, the very presence of life. And so at this point, this man is doing exactly what he should be doing. He's in the right place, at the right time, with the right burden, talking to the right person, and he comes with a posture of humility. This is the kind of situation, isn't it, that we dream of in our evangelism? Could you imagine being Jesus? This is a hot ticket, a hot item. This is a quick and easy sale. But Jesus knows that something is wrong. So instead of giving this man something easy, something that could be misunderstood, he challenges him. He's moving him towards a direction. He's moving him to look and understand his own heart and his own desires even. So he challenges him. Now Jesus simply could have said that you need to believe on me. And he says that in other places. But again, this is the Messiah, the one who has the spirit without measure. A man full of wisdom and understanding, and he puts that on display here. Sadly, many of us would, of course, say, you better not let him get away. Don't ruin this opportunity. This man is a seeker. This man is a seeker. But again, Jesus isn't interested in superficial commitments that will only lead to self-deception and false assurance. And so Jesus isn't deceived by his first impressions of this man who comes running up to him. And what's important to understand is Jesus loves this man enough. He cares for this man's soul enough to take him farther than he thought he even needed to go. So we need to learn from Jesus. 
Now that said, this man comes up and again, he's asking for the right thing, eternal life. This is the right thing to seek. And this is the very reason that Jesus came, isn't it? John 3.16, we know it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came to give eternal life. And though that man or this man doesn't understand everything that Jesus would reveal about that, he knows a great deal about eternal life. And this is a significant thing that he's asking him for. And it's a significant confession that he's making that he doesn't have it. As a Jew, eternal life was primarily life with God, that life that one will share with God in the resurrection. It primarily had a future focus, a a focus on the age that is to come. That's why continually Jesus talks about that you will enter into life. It's something that they will enter into at a future date. That's why he'll say later to the disciples that eternal life in verse 29 is something that they will inherit. That they will inherit. In other words, it's a reference to this age that is to come. And so it had a look towards the future and towards the resurrection. Now the primary text that this man would have had in his mind is in Daniel chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Daniel chapter 12. Looking forward to the future resurrection, the prophet, by inspiration of the Spirit, says this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He knew there was a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And Jesus will reiterate that in Matthew 25. Just listen. He says, these, those who displayed unbelief, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this man knows that there is going to be a resurrection at the end of the age. This man knows that in this resurrection, there are going to be the righteous who are with God, who will shine forth forever. And there are going to be the wicked who will experience everlasting contempt and judgment. So his question really is, how can I know that I will participate in the resurrection of the godly? How can I know as a Jew that when I die, I will be in the kingdom of God, that I will be in the grace of God? And he may have well heard of Jesus' teaching, either as he gave it or heard about it. Well, Jesus told them that many are going to stand before him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? And he'll say, depart from me, I didn't know you. He may have heard his answer to the centurion when he praised his faith and he said, you know what? People are going to come from the east, they're going to come from the west, speaking of the Gentiles. But the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast outside of the kingdom. He may have known that. And it may have sparked in him this very burden that he puts on display here. But either way, he is burdened with the fact that he doesn't have this life that he's asking for. And implicitly, he's acknowledging then that he's under judgment. He's acknowledging that he does not know that he is or will escape the wrath of God. He's implicitly acknowledging that. And he knows there's only two options, that there is the righteous and the wicked. There's no middle ground. There's no purgatory. There's no middle anything. It's with God and it's excluded from God. So he's asking Jesus, how do I know that in the resurrection I will be with the God of Israel? But eternal life is more than that. It's more than just participating in the future resurrection. It has the idea of the reality of fellowship with God. And again, this is not something this man would have been unaware of. The Old Testament saint enjoyed fellowship with God that produced confidence with him, that produced joy. Let me read to you just one text. These could be multiplied over and over, of course. Listen to Psalm 16. Interestingly, a psalm that speaks much about Christ. But he says here in Psalm 16:5, "The Lord is my portion," the psalmist does. "The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot." He'll say later, "Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life." And in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 
He knew that life included those things. Life with God included his presence. It included gladness. It included joy. It included security and hope and fellowship. And John 5.24, Jesus tells us the very same thing. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has now, currently, presently, eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So eternal life is something that we can have now. It's a fellowship with God that is real now and anticipates a future time. And this man is asking about this kind of relationship with God. He's essentially saying, I want a fellowship with God. I want an experience with the God of Israel. I want a kind of knowledge of this God that assures me that when I die, I will be with him. That gives me a present confidence now that I will be with him in his kingdom forever. But he knows he lacks these things. And so he comes to Jesus. And he asked him a question. He asked him a question. He says, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? So he has the right goal, but he wants it in the wrong way. Now again, he came to Jesus with an attitude of humility. With humility. Teacher is just a common and a respectful way that he would address Jesus as a superior rabbi, as one who knew more than he did and could give him what he lacked. It's a way to address your superior in religious matters. Now in Mark 10 and Luke 18, parallel passages, he's referred to as good teacher. Matthew chooses to leave that out because he's just narrowing the focus on the man's statement about how he is to obtain eternal life. Remember that each of the gospel writers is focusing on a particular part of the event. The man likely said both. Matthew chooses to leave that out to change the focus. And either way, here he is. A man with the right concern, but his question is a sad reflection of the spiritual blindness of his religion because it flows from a perception of God and the law and life that is fundamentally flawed. He says, what good thing shall I do? What good thing shall I do? And that's the problem. He fundamentally thought of this as something that he could do that would draw out of God a response of blessing, a response of favor, a response of salvation. And so he asked about what good thing. And in this context, just has the idea of what is it that is pleasing to God? What is it that is acceptable to God? What is it that I can do that will provoke from God, elicit from God his favor? What can I do that has the quality of goodness or righteousness that will assure me of God's favor in the life to come? And it's a good question. But again, it shows that he ignores what God has already showed him about what is good and about the one that God looks at. Isaiah 66, 2, God said, This is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble, the one who is contrite in spirit, the one who trembles at my word. Yet this man shows no evidence of considering that as a way to please God, only something that he might do. And again, this one question summarizes and exposes the damning lie of their whole religion and really all of the religion of man. It's the very lie that kept them impervious to the truth of God. It's what Paul lamented over when he would take the gospel to the Jews. And yet he said in Romans 10.3 that seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have rejected, they've neglected, they've put away the righteousness of God. Which is in Christ, who is the end of the law. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. And this man's question, though honest, displays that kind of blindness. And this isn't only the problem of religious men, but even non-religious. We know them, right? Who of us has not witnessed and heard, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. God will accept me. This is not just a first century Jewish thing. This is not simply a hypocritical religious thing. This is the default position of men. This is where we as sinners naturally go. And it's what keeps so many people from the grace of God and from the kingdom of heaven. It's a default view of salvation. And the fundamental lie and error is this. That my salvation, my security before God, my righteousness is essentially grounded in what I do. David Wells has captured this well. Let me quote. He says, There is within every sinner the deep impulse to resist the truth of their own helplessness 
And therefore to think that even if full salvation is not within their grasp, they do at least make some contribution to our own redemption. It is as though God left our salvation incomplete and now waits for us as we complete what he left undone, end quote. It is as if that God, in all of his redemptive work, didn't do everything and there was something left to be done still. And this reveals there are two ways of salvation. You know, you can boil all the world's religion down to two, can't you? Human achievement and divine accomplishment. And everybody outside of Christ is in the human achievement religion. And even though sometimes grace can get lodged in there and mixed up with it somehow, it isn't a grace that's sufficient to save, but only to make up for what I can't do. I'm responsible for the rest. This is essentially the lie that blinds millions of Roman Catholics, isn't it? Isn't it? Is it any different? They'll say Christ is necessary. Christ is essential to be saved. But Christ is not sufficient for my salvation. He's not sufficient for everything. And their salvation then depends in part by what they do. Grace that comes through the church. Their works that they do. This is an error that blinds so many. And it blinds this young man. And Jesus is going to labor to expose it and to expose his heart. And he's going to expose two fundamental errors. Two fundamental errors with this kind of thinking. And the first one is this, that this kind of thinking, at its very base, at its very core, has a wrong view of God. Has a wrong view of God. The gospel has to start with who God is. And so Jesus asked him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now notice what he's doing here. Jesus changes the direction of his question. Do you see that? Look at the verse. This man comes in verse 16 and he says, what good thing may I do? And Jesus changes that and he changes it from what good thing to just what is good in and of itself. Why do you ask me about what is good? And then he moves him beyond that to the person who is good. No one is good except God alone. You know that. In other words, your fundamental idea about goodness is wrong because your idea about God is deficient. Now, in Mark and Luke, Jesus prefaces this statement by what appears to be a deflection of the idea of goodness from himself to place it only on the Father. And there he says, why do you call me good? Remember, they had the young man saying, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. But he's not deflecting his own deity, which he makes perfectly clear. I and the Father are one. The Son is life in himself. That's not the issue. He's really challenging this man's view of who Christ is. And essentially, in our text, he's saying this. Your very understanding of what is good is wrong because your understanding about the nature of God is wrong. And the problem is that so many think, like this young man did, that goodness is something that can be had apart from God. It's something that can be had apart from God. And there is a deficient view then of the holiness of God. And if we don't understand the holiness of God and the majesty of God and the glory of God, we will have a deficient view of our own corruption and of our own sin. God accepts nothing less than perfection. Anything less than that is sin. It's sin. Sin is lawlessness. Anything that doesn't conform to his glory. And we have to understand that. But we won't understand that until we understand who God is in himself. Until you see that even your best deed is full of enough corruption that it cannot go without the cleansing grace of God and the need for forgiveness. Listen to John Calvin's words. I, I love these. This is one of my favorite part in his institutes. And it stands at the very beginning. Listen to these words that are very important for us to hear and understand. He says, quote, In estimating our spiritual goods... As long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. 
What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is, what in us seems perfect itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. End quote. That is the view of our sin that comes only from our right understanding of who God is. When you understand holiness, it changes your perspective on everything. It changes your perspective on everything. Paul, before he met Christ, thought of himself as a righteous Jew, as one who earned the favor of God, of one who God would count in his kingdom. And yet after he met Christ and after he came face to face with the majesty of Christ, what did he say? Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Nothing. That's the Apostle Paul with the Spirit of God, fruitful in ministry. And he said, nothing good dwells in me. I don't have anything good of myself. It comes only from God. When he was later in his life, he looked and he said that everything that I counted to my credit column, everything that I would have counted as good, like this rich young ruler, he says is actually dung, rubbish, garbage, graphic language. He understood the holiness of God like Isaiah, who in the presence of God, though being a prophet of God and the most honored of God and the most righteous among the nation of Israel at that time, who said what? I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. He understood his sin because he understood the holiness of God. He understood that he had no thing that he could lay before God and say, this is my goodness. Will you accept me on its own merit? He was undone. He was undone. And until this man is undone, he simply will not get what he's seeking. And until you and I or any sinner is undone before God of any of our own righteousness or any of our own goodness or any of our own works, we simply will not be prepared to receive the grace of God. There is only one in whom the Father could say, I am well pleased, and it is the Son, it is Christ. And Jesus points to him to the Father and says, there is only one who is good. In other words, you don't have any good thing you can do because what is good and pleasing to God can only come from his grace and ultimately through me. Let me say this, that there is a relative goodness of men toward other men. But even this is a problem. Even this can be deceiving. And certainly this man had at least this kind of goodness. And it's deceiving because this, because if it's thought and thought of apart from who God is and apart from the nature of God and apart from seeing everything is coming from God, then even that kind of goodness, though it helps our fellow men, only leads to an idea of self-justification and self-righteousness, which God hates. So in other words, then that good deeds becomes something that is in fact an offense to God, even though it is good among men. In other words, he's saying to this man and us, you have to look beyond yourself and your religion for goodness and need to raise your eyes and your thoughts up to God. Secondly, he exposes his wrong view then of his sinfulness. And to do this, Jesus points him to the commandments. He points him to the commandments. Look back at verse 17. Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. You know what is good. You know the law is good. You know that God has revealed his nature there. Go out and keep them. Now let me ask you a question. Is Jesus being dishonest or misleading? Of course not. Of course not. If you can keep the commandments, then you could be saved. If you could keep the commandments, then you could share in the life that God has. He said this back in Leviticus. Again, don't turn there. Let me just read this to you. If you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accordance with them, I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. Yes, if you can keep them, then you can live. But the problem is the law could never accomplish that. And this man didn't see it and the Jews didn't see it and false religion doesn't see it. It can't accomplish that because of the natural corruption of our own hearts. Instead, then, the law was never meant to produce righteousness. The law was meant to expose unrighteousness and sin. The law was meant to humble him, not to give him a rope by which he can hang on to to achieve eternal life. This is what, again, 
Paul tells us when he's explaining the gospel, he says that every man is under the law so that every mouth may, mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He told us again in Galatians, the law to the nation of Israel was never a means of righteousness. It was never a means by which they could enter into life. But the law was a tutor to shut up everybody under sin so that they could be led to faith in Christ. If it performed its function rightly and they responded to it rightly, then it would convict them of their sin. And when Christ came as their Messiah, they would have embraced him as the Savior that he was designed to be, that he came to be. And in fact, that he was, but not for so many of those whom he came to. And that's the problem. They misunderstood the law because they misunderstood their God. They didn't know his holiness. They didn't know his heart. And so they didn't know his requirement. And so they made up one of their own. And they were blinded. And they were deceived. Now when Jesus said this statement to this man. And if this statement were said to us. It should be a devastating statement. It should be absolutely devastating. To see your God say, if you want life, keep the commandments, should, if rightly understood, in us, make us go, I am undone. I can't do that. Then life is outside of my grasp. That's what this man should have responded. He should have responded like the publican. He said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And in fact, the whole sacrificial system was designed to do just that, wasn't it? Why did they take lambs? Why did they take bulls? Why did they take goats? You who are reading through the Bible know that we're soon into Leviticus. Why was it such a bloody mess? Why did they do that? It was a reminder of their sins year after year, as Hebrews tells us. It was supposed to be a reminder that you need a substitute and these blood and bulls don't do it. But I will through the one I sin. He should have understood that. He should have been devastated by this statement, but he wasn't. He wasn't. So he looks at Jesus in the eye and with all sincerity, what does he say? What does he say? Look at verse 18. He says, which ones? Which ones? He felt confident that if he only knew which commandment was needed, he could keep it. He could do it. And so Jesus gives him only the second half of the Decalogue, those related primarily to our relationship with men. Jesus says to him, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, he should have heard those things and he should have been devastated. He should have been undone, but he wasn't. Look at what he says. The young man said to him, looking at Christ in his very eyes, all of these things I have kept. All of these things I have kept. Mark and Luke add that he said, I've kept from my youth up. Beloved, this is spiritual blindness. This man is outside of God's saving purposes. He can't be saved. He can't be saved. Why? Jesus said this already, didn't he? He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Only sinners repent. Righteous people don't repent. Righteous people are not saying, I am undone. Righteous people are not broken over the holiness of God and seeing their failure to meet that requirement. Righteous people are not longing for the kind of Savior that Jesus is. Only sinners. Only sinners want that kind of Savior. So this man, when he looked at the commandment, he found no reason to confess his sin. He found no reason to be humbled. He found no reason to put himself before God seeking his grace. He was like those in 1 John 1.8, right? Right? If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. You're deceived. It's the one who confesses their sin who walks in the light. This man knew nothing of that. And until you understand your sin and helplessness before God, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. It will be hidden. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. We won't talk there there because of time. Paul says, look, before the law came, I was alive. When I was a self-righteous Jew, I was alive. But when the law came and when I understood its significance and what it truly requires, when I heard the command, do not covet, and got it, then all of a sudden I died. I was undone. I realized that the law, good and holy and righteous, was in fact a means of my death and not my life. Why? Because of the problem with the law? No, but because of our sin. Because of our sin. And it shows us how sinful it is. 
So my question to you is, do you see your sin before God? Do you really think of your sin in that way? Do you really see your life in that way? I can ask more specifically, as we would address our own children, and I would address those, teenagers, do you feel convicted over your sin for not honoring your parents? Is that something that breaks you and humbles you? Adults, do you feel convicted over your sin that you fail to meet God's standard and that out of love for him, you want to and you're convicted that you don't and you seek his grace? Are you really any different than this rich young ruler? Do you see yourself as helpless and you can only be restored to fellowship and have salvation through the grace of Christ? Now, interestingly, this man didn't see his sin, but he knows that he doesn't have what he's seeking after. He knows he doesn't have life. And so even though he said, I've kept all these things, he says, I'm still, what am I lacking? What am I lacking? He saw himself as righteous before the law of God. He knew he was missing something, that his spiritual life wasn't complete. He was sure that he obeyed the commandments, but in fact, it was all superficial. It lacked the true heart obedience and love to God. Now, that being said, it's very important that we don't make a wrong evaluation of this person. It's very important. This man was sincere. As a matter of fact, Mark 10, 21 tells us that even after he said this, even after he said, I've done all this, Jesus looked at him not with anger as he did the Pharisees, Mark 3, 5, with their self-righteousness, hardness of heart. It says he looked at him and what? He loved him. It says he loved him. He had a tenderness towards this man. He had a compassion for this man. Why? Why? This man was being sincere. He did truly believe he had kept all these things. He truly did want an answer from God about this burden and from Christ about this burden that was on his heart. He's not speaking out of hypocrisy in contrast to the Pharisees and the others who would come up to him and try to trick him and test him. He's not doing that here. He's not being proud. He's not trying to be boastful. He truly believed he had kept these commandments and that he could stand before God on his own obedience. He believed that. And it was a burden on his heart that he didn't have what he wanted. And this is very important for us to understand or we will misjudge him and misunderstand the true nature of what Jesus is going to expose. Why? How many people stand on their sincerity as what God will accept them by? I'm sincere. I'm sincere. I am sincere in what I do. This man was sincere to the hilt. So many rest in sincerity of heart as the authenticity of their righteousness and the grounds of why God will accept their works. But Jesus shows that isn't it. That isn't it. He wouldn't recognize his sin before the law, so Jesus is going to lay before him a final test. Look down at verse 21. And let's note then the true cost of repentance. The true cost of repentance. He says in verse 21, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. And with this, Jesus addresses the central issue of this man's heart. And he cuts through the delusion of legalism and self-righteousness, self-interest, and exposes it for what it is. And really, in effect, Jesus is just saying, hey, you keep the commandments. You kept, supposedly, the second part of the commandments. You need to keep the first commandment. You need to have no other gods before me. In fact, you need to keep the greatest commandment. You need to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Only he puts it in different terms, but that's what he's getting at. If you wish to be perfect, not without sin, but the idea of being complete and whole. If you want to be complete in your obedience. He picks up the idea of Matthew 5.48. He uses it again there in contrast to works righteousness. But the main idea is this, that of conforming to God's will. If you want to really conform to God's will, if you want to really do everything God requires of you, if you really want to demonstrate your obedience and your want for eternal life, then do this. Do this. And he gives him three commands. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and then calls him to come, follow him. Now what is the Lord talking about here? He's not simply talking about possessions, beloved. Right? This isn't the call. He's dealing with this particular man. He's dealing with his heart. He knows what the idol of his heart is. He knows what he's resting in. Possessions and wealth are not the issue in and of themselves. That's a very superficial reading of this. The problem is that this young man found his identity in them. He found his security in them. He found his hope in them. He found his pleasure in them. It was his idol. 
In other words, Jesus isn't just saying, here's a blanket command for the kingdom, go and sell everything you have. What he is saying is this, that you have to let go of everything else you're trusting in and that you find your identity in and your security in. And so he's telling this man, go. If you really want eternal life, abandon everything else that you're trusting in. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Come follow me. Come follow me. Find your joy and your trust and your security in me. This is the heart of the law, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. If you really wanted to do that, if you really wanted that kind of eternal life, then that's what you would do. You would do it. You'd say, yes, yes, I can do that, and I will do that. This young man wanted eternal life, but he wanted everything else that he already had with it. He wanted eternal life in addition to what he had. And Jesus says, look, eternal life isn't like that. Eternal life doesn't work that way. It doesn't work on your terms. It doesn't work on the terms of men. It comes on God's terms. God's terms. Eternal life isn't an addition to your life. It's a replacement to your life. Christ doesn't become another part of your life. He's the very center of your life from which everything else flows. That's what he's saying. Now, Jesus isn't giving this man then some meritorious act to do, but he's giving him an opportunity to display the true condition of his heart. This isn't a matter of works. It's a matter of faith. He's not calling him to do a work. He's calling him to completely transfer the allegiance of his heart. Completely transfer the allegiance of his heart. He's saying you need to abandon your current value system and exchange it for God's. You need to abandon everything else that you're trusting in and place your trust completely in him, in Christ. And by not doing this, his obedience is shown to have never been true. Never really for God. It was really for himself. Look, it's not a good thing that you do. That's too easy. It's everything. It's everything. And beloved, we must come to a point when we're willing to lose everything if that's what it takes to gain Christ. Every relationship, every opportunity, popularity, prestige, authority, sense of control, security in things other than God himself, comforts, emotional and physical, long-cherished lust and sin, everything needs to be abandoned for Christ. That's the faith that he calls us to. There must be a willingness to do that. Then that's what he's calling this man to. Are you willing to do that? Do you want eternal life like that? Are you willing to deny yourself? Are you willing to take up your cross? Are you willing to follow me? Are you willing to lose your life that you might truly have life? This is childlike faith. Now let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Was this man seeking God? Was he seeking God? Was he a seeker? Was he a seeker? Is that how we would classify him? Romans 3 tells us that no man seeks for God. And some will say, wasn't this man seeking for God? Didn't he come seeking eternal life? And didn't he come seeking this eternal life from Jesus himself? And the answer would have to be, ultimately, no. No. Ultimately, he wasn't seeking for God. What was he seeking then? He was ultimately seeking his own ends. Something that would end in his own satisfaction in this life. He knew wealth and possessions weren't doing it completely, but he didn't want to abandon them. He didn't want what true Jesus truly came to give. He knew his religion was lacking something deeper at the heart level, but ultimately he wasn't really seeking to abandon it for God. He was still seeking to hold on to it and just add to it, make it more fulfilling. I don't want to lose everything. I just want to add something else to my life. That's what's going on question may still be asked, but isn't salvation in itself one seeking their own ends in, in order to escape the judgment of God? Isn't that what salvation is? And the answer is yes, in part, but that's not the first and the ultimate impression of true faith in the heart. God must be seen and loved for who he is in himself. Do you understand that? He must be seen as glorious and lovely and holy in himself, apart from anything that he would give. What draws the heart to God is God himself, not necessarily his benefits. And this man wasn't drawn to God himself. He was drawn to God for what God could do for him, how God could add for him, how God could complete him. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 we won't take that. We won't take that. God must be everything. Christ must be everything. 
He must be everything else to you. He must be everything that you're, so much that you'd be willing to give everything to have him. And beloved, let me mention to you, this is why we must be clearly God-centered in our ministry and in our evangelism. Because if God is not seen for who he is and loved for who he is, then what we do is we produce false conversions. People are resting on a false foundation. It is loving. It is caring. It is compassionate. It is kind to tell somebody who God is in their true condition. It is unkind to make them feel good in the present and to damn them for eternity. We have to understand that. It is the grace of God that holds up the glory of God so that the sinner would be humbled. But in the end, he didn't want it. He wasn't willing to love God supremely more than the things of this world. God ultimately wasn't seen as that glorious and worthy in comparison to everything else that he had. His sin was not that bad, and repentance was not that worth it. So what did he do? Well, look at verse 22. When the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And I think, beloved, this is one of the saddest accounts in all of Scripture next to Judas. Next to Judas. He had the right burden. This man wanted eternal life. He knew he could only get it from Jesus. He was kneeling before the very one who came from heaven for the purpose of purchasing eternal life for sinners. And here he was before him, and yet he turned away. He walked away from salvation. He walked away from Christ. So he was standing right there because the price was too high. He failed to see his true need. He failed to understand the true nature of God and his own sinfulness. And he makes one of the most tragic and foolish decisions anyone has ever made. He forsook salvation. Why? To keep his stuff. To keep his stuff. He wants his stuff. You can have your stuff, but you can't have Christ too. You can't have Christ too. Jesus says you need treasure in heaven, not treasure in this earth. In heaven, not here. But the key issue is you have to redefine what your treasure is. Treasure has to take on a whole new meaning to you. Treasure and value can't be these things. It has to be something else. It has to be me. It has to be the glory of God. It has to be grace. It has to be the kingdom that I've come to offer. And let me tell you, the devil has designed a very effective system to keep man's interest here. Watch commercials with discernment. Watch TV with discernment. What does it draw out of the affections of your heart? Here. Here. Everything in your surroundings is designed to keep you focused here. And everything that God is doing is taking you to rip you out of this world and to put your eye and mind where Christ is, seated at the heavenlies, at the right hand of God, and in the things to come, that this world is passing away. Live for those things that are of true value. True value. But this man, he didn't. He chose what is passing over what is eternal. The world that is fading away. Coming to Christ... One says, look, you can kill my body, you can take my possessions, you can give me difficulties and trials throughout life and suffering that comes because of fate. And Paul says, I don't even consider the suffering of this world worthy to be compared with the glories that are coming. The glories of the new heavens and the new earth. The glories of being in the kingdom of Christ. The glories of enjoying the fullness of salvation. Fate says, those glories are my treasure. I don't look at the things which are seen, but which are unseen. And even worse, it's choosing this man did what doesn't satisfy, leaving what truly could satisfy, Christ. Augustine said this, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This man wasn't going to find peace. He left. He wasn't going to find a relief to his burden. He wasn't going to find the joy and the hope that he was looking for. He wasn't going to find any of those things because he was going to the wrong place. He was never going to be made complete. So in fact, this man really didn't want eternal life. Because eternal life is to say, I want God and to know him more than anything else. Isn't that what Jesus defined it as? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you want eternal life, then that means more to you than anything else. Anything else. So this man didn't really want that. If you want eternal life, if you want forgiveness of sin, if you want true freedom from sin's power, if you know you stand, to know that you stand in the righteousness of Christ, free from condemnation by death, then you would give anything to have that. This man came supposedly seeking life, and he stood before the very presence of eternal life, but what did he choose? He chose death. 
He started out with, I want to obtain eternal life. And God offers it to him. Christ offers it to him. And instead, he chose death. He chose misery. He chose poorly. He chose this world, and he forfeited his soul. So Jesus, what did he do? He let him go. He let him go. You don't see Jesus chasing down the road. He laid before him what his options were. The man made a choice. Jesus let him go. He will not cater to self-centered seekers, but those truly under the conviction of the Holy Spirit who hate their sin, who want Christ more than anything else, who are truly seeking him for who he is in himself and is the one willing to save humbled sinners and receive them into his presence. If you're humbled by your sin, then the most precious words in all of Scripture are, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he holds that before this man. But you know what? He wasn't weary. He wasn't heavy laden. And he didn't want that kind of rest. So he walked away. And Jesus let him go. We don't know what happened to this man. But we know what he did in this situation. And God gives it to us as a warning. He gives it to us as a way to examine our own hearts. To examine where we stand before God. And I would challenge you to do that this morning. And even us who know Christ. Though our faith isn't perfect, we do want that kind of abandonment to the glory of God. We need to be constantly reminded that the kingdom is worth it and Christ is worth it. And so as you examine your own heart, don't be dishonest. Ask the Lord to search you, the Holy Spirit to search you, and respond in faith. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for the grace that you have laid before us in your most dear and precious Son. Our Lord, we thank you for abandoning heaven, as it were, that though you were rich, you became poor for our sakes, that though you existed in the form of God, you took on the form of man, even of a slave, and you became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for our salvation, but ultimately to the end of your glory. Because you did this, the Father highly exalted you, and you will be the treasure of all eternity, and you are the treasure of your people now. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use then this call of Christ that you have recorded for us on the pages of Scripture to call some to faith in you and to call others to greater obedience and love for Christ. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And we pray these things in the matchless name of him who died and rose again for sinners such as us. In the name of Christ, amen.